everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Psychic on the Scene. I'm Katie, and here with me, as always, is my amazing, wonderful uh, co-host, Michelle Lyons-Felito. Hey, everyone. And my other lovely, wonderful co-host, Dee Scott. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) And Michelle is going to intro tonight's amazing guest, um, who is a return guest, and wonderful to have on again. We are so happy we have a uh, homeopath Tim Owens on again tonight. And he was actually our last in studio uh, podcast well over a year ago. So it, it's great to have him back. And tonight he's going to be talking to us about transcendental meditation. Um, also known so as yeah. And I, this is something I personally been just fascinated with for years. And it's probably my, the next step on my journey is TM. So Tim, Please tell us all about it, your, your, your personal experience with it, how you got into it, and what you do now. Right. And how to make it accessible for other people, like, uh, you know, out there listening so they can get started. Yes. Huh. Well, that's, that's a tall order. All right. I'll do it. <laughs> and so, go. <laughs> yeah. Let me start, because I, I was thinking about this before we got started today, and I thought, you know, I'm going to have to give some history. Um, yes. So... In order to appreciate this, or at least my spin on it, remember that I am a baby boomer, uh, mm-hmm. nestled right in the thick of that. So <laughs> I was born in 1951. I'll be 70 this year. And so- Wow, I, you I look came, amazing. You <laughs> and your wife. I, I came of age in the 1960s. And for mm-hmm. you guys, that's essentially a piece of history. For me, it was a lived reality. And uh, whatever you've read or heard or thought about as far as the 60s are concerned, um, you really had to be there to fully appreciate how (laughs) remarkable that particular period of our history was. Um, So uh, I graduated high school in 1969 and then toddled off to uh, SUNY Albany. When I got there, I immediately hung out with uh, the wrong crowd. (laughs) I wasted no time in finding- Perfect all of the people that were engaged in all sorts of things that I shouldn't. But that, as a backdrop, I would start by saying, when I was a kid growing up in Troy, New York, I one time went to the Troy Public Library. I'm not even sure why. <laughs> but when I went in, I found this very curious book. And this book has been a touchstone for so many, especially of my generation, but for many others. And it's called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Mm -hmm. Now, Paramahansa Mm -hmm. Yogananda came over in the 19, I want to say 1920s. He was the first real bona fide uh, Hindu guru to arrive in the United States and stay. (laughs) There had been previous ones who came and visited, stayed for a little bit and then went back home. But uh, he came and established residence out in California and uh, established a center. And in some ways, he opened the floodgates for all of the others that came over in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're still arriving to this day. Um, Now, you know, as a kid, I saw this book. It was a big, fat tome. And I remember opening it up and there was a picture of a yogi sitting in full lotus posture, staring out into the camera. And Mm -hmm. I looked at that picture of him sitting in lotus and I said, I don't know what this guy is up to, (laughs) but I want to be a part of that. 
You and could I, feel it. That, that instant sort of, yeah, that's it resonated there. But competing with all of that, of course, was it was the 1960s and the psychedelics have, had come out. So just to give you some more history, let's appreciate that a lot of the psychedelics were launched by a guy named Albert Hoffman. Oh, yeah. He was a uh, chemist, pharmacist in Switzerland. Yep. And during the middle of World War II, you'll recall that Switzerland was a neutral nation. And so he was conducting research on a fungus, a group of alkaloids that came from a fungus that grows on rye flour. Oh, yes. Long history in European, uh, in European history where uh, uh, people would, would have a granary where they'd stock wheat flour, it would get wet and this fungus would grow and the entire village would go absolutely crazy. Um, this fungus uh, creates hallucinations and eventually death, it's highly toxic. Mm. But this fungus, which is called ergot, gave rise to a whole bunch of compounds, the ergotamines, and uh, Hoffman was playing around in his lab one day with one of those and got some apparently on the tips of his finger, lipped the tip tip of his finger. And an hour or so later, he climbed on his bicycle to ride home and uh, basically introduced us to the 1960s. He had, uh, <laughs> one of the wildest, most psychedelic bicycle rides in human history. <laughs> oh my God. And he realized that he was onto something well, he wasn't quite clear on what that was. Um, and then appreciating that LSD is now a part of the human condition. Uh, we know about this stuff. Then along comes Aldous Huxley, the very famous British author for, responsible for Brave New World. Mm -hmm. uh, Huxley in 1953 does some mescaline, another hallucinogen, and he writes a book called Doors of Perception. And in the Doors of Perception, he describes the powers of these psychedelic chemicals and their capacity to open us up for, well, call it novel experience. And uh, that gets published. And again, that fur furnishes part of the backdrop. It becomes a bestseller amongst a lot of Yahoo kids. The United <laughs> States government um, gets involved with LSD. And of course, um, they run a series of exper experiments to see what it can do. And they were thinking about using it for spy work and interrogation and all manner of uh, things you would expect from a government. <laughs> but uh, in addition, some other characters got a hold of LSD and the most prominent amongst them included Ken Kesey who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, He was involved in research where um, they would uh, feed him doses of LSD and then ask him questions. For instance, they like to ask him, what is, what, how fast is your pulse right now? Well, Kesey knew the question was coming, so he put his finger on his uh, pulse and uh, kept a watch on and would tell them to the nearest beat, the accurate pulse that he was experiencing. Wow. Wow. All to screw up their research. And that's how he essentially became the merry prankster that would become famous in the 60s. He got a van or a bus and he converted it and painted it psychedelic and went all around the United States um, tripping people out on LSD. Oh then, of course, two other characters came along. There was Richard Alpert and, uh, and then a guy who became uh, Baba Ram Dass. That was Richard Alpert. And then, of course, uh, Timothy Leary. So psychedelics enter the scene and lots of kids who are growing up in a post-World War II world where 
um, salute the flag, be good little boys and girls, do what your mommy and daddy says, do what the system tells you, join the military and so on and so forth. And we were starting to balk at that stuff. And along comes LSD and mescaline and peyote and a bunch of other things. And kids start playing around with this. And that sort of opened the sluice gates for the 1960s. In 1969, I did my first hit of LSD. No, actually, that was 1970. And it was utterly mind boggling. Now, it scared the hell out of me. So the first trip wasn't all that great. But the second one I did out in Boston. And while I was there, I had this experience where I kept trying to put my finger on being. I was feeling being, and I kept writing on a piece of paper, being, is, am, isness, being, amness. I was having these really direct perceptions of, well, let's call it the ground of being. And it was profound and it was life changing. And after I came down from that trip, I thought to myself, I don't know what that was all about completely, but whatever it is, I need to get back there and I need to find a way to do it without a drug. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so I, I started to read and I, I began reading in various texts and I ran across Aldous Huxley and I found him fascinating. And then I went back and revisited Paramahansa Yogananda and read some of his stuff. And so it went. And again, I'm going to tell you the whole story, the whole truth and nothing. But so <laughs> in the early 70s, I had dropped out of college, managed to avoid the draft. And I was working as a carpenter's helper in South Albany. And uh, it was a brutal job. I did a lot of demolition work. And I was also wrestling with a demon called alcohol. Oh. So I, I would often go to work, get done, go home, buy a bunch of beer and get wasted. And this one afternoon, it was a Friday afternoon about three o'clock. And we would traditionally on the last day of work, we would take a break at three o'clock. And um, I would run down to the local store, get a quart of beer and come back, suck down my beer and then get ready to go home and party all night long. <laughs> The boss of the operation was a guy named Charlie Tui and he had an assistant named Kevin. And the two of them were talking behind me as I was on the break, sucking on my quart of beer. And I heard one of them say the word, oh yeah, that he's, he teaches the master game. And I heard that and I thought, what the hell are they talking about? And I turned around and I said, Charlie, what are you guys talking about? And he said, oh, we're talking about transcendental meditation. <laughs> I said, what's that? He said, well, you heard about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Beatles and all that. Yeah. Well, we we're just talking about how meditation is the master game. It is the game that solves all the other games. Mm. And I thought, oh, I love that. Huh? Isn't that interesting? And I said, well, well, how do you do it? What do you do? And he said, look, they have lectures up at SUNY Albany on Wednesday nights. Just go to one of the lectures and see what they say. So I went to a lecture. I showed up on a Wednesday night. I listened to the guys talk. I was not terribly impressed. They were all like little robots. But when they finished, they said they were going to do another one in preparation to learn the technique. So I came the following week, listened to the second lecture, and I thought, you know, these guys don't really do much for me. But one of them wasn't nearly as dopey as the other two. So <laughs> I wandered up to him at the end, and I said, look, if I learn this TM stuff, do you think it might help me with this little issue I'm having with drinking beer all the time? And he said, well, it might, well, who knows? 
So on that basis, I thought, well, then I'll learn TM and then maybe I won't have to drink alcohol all the time and everything will be fine. So I went and I learned TM. And of course, uh, my first experience of it wasn't terribly impressive. I thought it was, well, they said it was simple, it was natural, and it was effortless. And it was all of those things, but you know, I didn't see any lights or whistles or bells or anything like that. It just seemed like a really quiet little way to sit still. And so I wasn't much impressed. And and yet they had charged me the princely sum of $35 for the privilege of learning this. Now remember, this is 1971. That's a lot of money back then. And that was a week's pay for me. So um, so I thought, well, damn their eyes. I'm going to keep doing this stuff just to spite them. So I did. <laughs> and I went on with my life. And a couple of months later, I was getting up in the morning in my usual condition and wandering out the door. And maybe an hour after I was up and running around, I thought to myself, you know, I, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I thought, this is weird. I don't usually feel like this. And then this thought came up and I thought, I wonder if this is the damn meditation. <laughs> and that was my first hint that there was something in there. And so uh, subsequent to that, as a result of a series of bizarre events, I wound up living the 1960s dream. And I took off to uh, uh, the West Coast. I went to uh, Los Angeles, California. I wound up in Santa Monica and I lived there for three or four months. Oh, wow. Uh, a friend. And while I was there, I, I discovered that L.A. was essentially a smorgasbord of every conceivable new age technique you've ever heard of. Yep. So, of course, uh, right next to my house was a Scientology warehouse. Ooh. There was uh, the, uh, what the what did he call it? The uh, International Yoga Fellowship from Paramahansa Yogananda, Swami Satchidananda, Yogi Bhajan. There were all these characters with all these different techniques, but I'd learned TM and I thought, you know, I'll just keep doing my TM. I went to the TM center and um, continued doing my TM, eventually came back here <clears throat> and, and took up residence. But over the course of that time, I just started thinking, oh, this is really pretty cool stuff. I'd like to learn more about it. So I went to what was at the time called a residence course. And at the residence course was a guy named Charlie Lutz. And Charlie Lutz was one of the guys that kind of met Maharishi when he got off the plane in Los Angeles in 1958. And so he became his right-hand man and traveled with him, set up all of his speaking dates, uh, took care of his living arrangements. He was, you know, Maharishi's man Friday, and he became very knowledgeable about TM and about Maharishi. And he also became sort of a tolerated rogue. Now, shortly after Maharishi came here, it quickly became an institution and institutions have this perennial problem of as soon as you become an institution, you get constipated. Yep. So <laughs> all of the information that goes out is carefully screened and monitored and we only mm -hmm. say this and we don't say that and this is okay and that's not. Well, Charlie went off the reservation and he would say all kinds of things. And because he was Maharishi's boy, Maharishi just said, well, that's Charlie, leave him alone. So we would go to courses and listen to Charlie. And when Charlie showed up, he would talk about angels and spacecraft and aliens and all kinds of kooky stuff. And that immediately appealed to me. And over the course of time, I thought to myself, you know, I'd like to go learn to become a TM teacher. So I went to Canada first, and I spent a month in Canada studying with the Maharishi. And uh, after that, I came back home, and I prepped myself, and then flew to Spain, and I spent 
two and a half months in Spain again with Maharishi, and there I was trained to be a TM teacher. Wow. Now, upshot of that all was like, yeah, that's what I thought. I was 21 years old. What did I know? Wow. So I came back and I opened a TM center, and it was very interesting being a snot nosed 21 year old college dropout and teaching RPI professors, doctors, lawyers, crazies like myself, housewives. <laughs> So I had a little TM center in Troy and I ran that for about a year. And then I, again, go back to the, my earlier comments about institutions. I ran up against the, uh, the brain police of the TM organization. We had a little dust up and I parted ways. Now, when I parted from uh, the TM organization, it was basically the institution itself, the meditation I always loved. And so I continued to do that and I went out into the world and I lived my life. So I ultimately got, well, among other things, I got sober. That happened in 1979. I learned the TM does not address alcoholism or drug addiction or any of that sort of stuff. It's not a bad thing as an adjunct, but if you have an alcohol or drug problem, go get professional help. It's worth it. Mm -hmm. Eight years to figure that out, but eventually I did. So by 1979, I was all straightened out on that score, and I was a regular meditator. And then I eventually married uh, Chick, who has been on your show. You've met her. So amazing. The the two of us joined forces. I taught her TM, and then I went back to college, finished all my degrees, became a high school English teacher, had a couple of kids, did a teaching career, and all that sort of stuff. And through it all, I did my TM twice a day, 20 mm-hmm. minutes twice a day. And I don't know how people live without it. it. It kept me sane. I worked at Schenectady High School, which was a zoo. And um, <laughs> at the end of the day, after incoming and wounded, I would head home and close my eyes. And 20 minutes later, I'd emerge refreshed and ready to go back and do battle again. That seems to be the commonality with all of the meditations is that it really does kind of for if you do it for 20 minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, it really does reset, Tim, your um, kind of like your core energy. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of what I found is it smooths everything out. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's been wor- well, actually. I got initiated on July 25th of 1971. So this July, I'll have been doing this twice a day, every day for 50 years. Oh my wow. God. When, I, when I was first uh, a TM teacher, I, you know, I had been meditating for all of about a year and a half. And as I said, I was 21 years old. Um, looking back, what I remember most was as a brand new TM teacher, I was long on enthusiasm and short on experience. Um, 50 years after my initiation, I would say I'm long on both. I'm long on experience and long on enthusiasm. So I've had 50 years of experiencing this and I know that it works. I know that it's a really remarkable process. And what I'd like to do is now talk to you a little bit about the specifics of this technique versus any others that are out there. Oh yes. Perfect. Beautiful. I've looked at lots of other meditation techniques, but as an outsider, I haven't necessarily practiced any of them, but I have been doing TM, as I said, for a half a century, so I have some knowledge of it. If you go to a TM lecture, or if you did back in the early 70s, late 60s, you would hear some very simple little analogies being given to explain meditation. And one of the the first is 
Maharishi would explain that the basis of transcendental meditation is the natural tendency of the mind always to go in the direction of more. Mm. More happiness, more peace, more joyfulness, more serenity, more charm, more intelligence, more you name it. The mind always goes that way. So the simple example of that is to say, if somebody out there in podcast land is listening to this right now, and they've heard me drone on for 20 minutes, and they get bored, and they hear their favorite song on the radio, they don't have to stop and say, you know, this guy, does he ever shut up? I think I'll listen to my favorite song. The transition from being bored by my commentary to listening to their song is instantaneous and automatic. There is no thought, there's no volition, there's no effort. It just happens. That natural tendency okay. is hardwired into our brains. We can't create it. It's been put in from Jump Street. So we all have that. So what TM does is it takes advantage of that. It says, look, if the mind is given the right direction, it will always go in the direction of more. So what TM does is it says, what we will do is give you a specific thought. And if you use that thought in a very particular way, in a, using a technique, you know, like a push-up or a pull-up or a, mm -hmm. it, it's just a technique, it's not a belief, it's none of those things. You just use this technique the mind will shift its attention and move in the direction of greater energy and intelligence. Oh my God. And as it does, it will settle. And so through this process, as it keeps settling, it will continually go to subtler and subtler levels of the thinking process until ultimately it will go to the most energetic, intelligent, fulfilling aspect of our own consciousness. And that is simply pure awareness Ooh. or the transcendent. So what TM has in particular is contained in its name. It is a transcendental meditation. So if you use this technique correctly, and it's incredibly simple, then the mind just automatically settles down into what we would call in Sanskrit, samadhi, that is transcendental consciousness. Wow. Now, when, when you first begin doing TM, typically that experience is very brief. The mind settles in, there's an experience of no thought, just empty silence. Mm. And then we quickly come back out and then we start the process again. So we go in and out repeatedly. But during the course of that, we are exposed to that experience of samadhi. Now, the way we know this is true is that Maharishi himself, when he came over from India, his background was in physics. So he was a scientist. He was trained in science. Hmm. When he came over here, he would grab all these crazy kids, all these hippies who <laughs> wanted to learn how to meditate. And he would say to them, look, if you want to go to work for me, the first thing I need you to do is run out and get a PhD in one of the sciences. And when you're done, I'm gonna put you to work. So lots of kids did, and they went out and got PhDs in physiology, PhDs in medicine, PhDs in kinesiology, in all sorts of things. And so what he said is this isn't just a, a nifty little experience, it also has physiological correlates, and I want them all measured, I want them all absolutely quantified. So starting in the mid 1960s, lots of these characters went out and did tons of research. At this 
point, there are over 350 different research studies published in all kinds of journals all over the world, all peer reviewed, all very credible pieces of research and they cover all manner of things. I, when I was in Canada, there was a guy who got up and said he was a dentist and he was studying the effect on, of TM on tooth tartar. Well, so <laughs> if, you can, if you can think of it, uh, TM has researched it. It is beneficial on the level of the body in myriad ways. The American Heart Association has recommended it as the only form of meditation that they will endorse as having a direct effect on hypertension and high blood pressure and heart attack. Um, so again, TM has been thoroughly researched. And one of the things they discovered is that when somebody closes their eyes to do TM, that immediately after they begin the technique, the breathing settles into a very deep state. The amount of oxygen that you consume is a determinant of your metabolic rate and TM drops the met metabolic level, the oxygen consumption lower than we do in sleep. Mm. But what's interesting about it is you're not asleep, you're wide awake. You're in a state that is best known as restful alertness. And in that state, your body is getting an enormous rest deeper than sleep. In the course of that rest, you begin to release stress. Mm -hmm. So in the late 60s, early 70s, as his research came out, that was how Maharishi marketed TM. He said, look, you people in the West, in Europe and the United States and Canada need to know that if you're out running around living crazy Western lives, you need to take 20 minutes twice a day to start neutralizing all the stress you accumulate. And wow. So the research came out and said, we can clean this stuff up and give you some kind of equanimity in your daily lives. So that was originally how TM was sold. And in the late 60s, early 70s, there was an enormous interest in TM and literally millions of people learned it. Now, as I said earlier, um, there was this guy, Charlie Lutz, that I kind of followed around. And Charlie was the one who took us behind the curtain and said, there's other things you need to know besides stress release, that in fact, TM is, um, it is comfortable with lots of other things. Hmm. So among others, uh, TM is a preparation for higher states of consciousness. In order to attain a sustain higher states of consciousness, we need to release stress from our nervous systems or as Maharishi put it, enlightenment belongs to the strong. Mm. So regular practice of a technique like transcendental meditation allows us to shore up the nervous system so that we can start to sustain higher states of awareness. Oh, wow. And then Charlie came along and started talking about what those were like and, and what opens up. Uh, Maharishi himself had said at one point that when you learn transcendental meditation, your ultimate goal is what we, what in Sanskrit is called nitya samadhi. So I said earlier, when you practice, each time you practice, you have repeated experience of this samadhi, this silent inner wakefulness. But if you practice transcendental meditation for a very long time, very often people have a kind of a shift, an awakening. And that samadhi becomes established all the time. Mm. 
Mm. You open your eyes, go out into the world, and there is an awareness of that silent witness inside while at the same time still engaging in ordinary activity. So we're still going to the supermarket and hanging out with the wife and kids and <laughs> life goes on. But at the same time, we're aware of that silent depth of our own inner consciousness. And that kind of opens the door. Maharishi said, that is like capturing the fort. That is what establishes us. Now he then went on and said, look, it's very easy to get attracted by what he called the silver mines, the gold mines, the diamond mines that are all around. And in a sense, a lot of what your program does is it explores those various areas. So people with psychic abilities, people with healing abilities, mm -hmm. people with all of these different things. Maharishi would call them these, these treasures, these wonderful things that are available to human beings. But then he went on and he said, if you really want to take full advantage of these things, you must first capture the fort. Once you have mm -hmm. captured the fort, you have access to all the treasures around. And so the goal of something like transcendental meditation is the permanent establishment of this state of consciousness. Mm. And then once that's established, the fun begins. <laughs> what are, in effect, like Katie and I, who talk to dead people, oh, well, Chick knows because she experiences them. I'm, I, I mean, it must like sharpen it or I don't know. It enhances whatever you are. Oh. So each of us has our own, you know, let's call it key signature. Some of us are a B flat major, some are C minors. Okay. Uh, we all resonate in different ways. So when, when someone practices meditation, whatever they are, it just becomes more established and clearer. So if your particular gift is to work with the discarnates, then it's only going to get better. That's uh, if, if your gift is healing, that too should get better. If your gift is speaking, that should get better. Mm. So it all depends on the individual, but the unfolding of that potential is a function of their unfolding their own inner awareness. That's the basis of everything. I find this very exciting. I really do. I, I you know, because you can do other meditations, but per, I, I, I've never done transcendental. Well, um, yeah, and I don't want to denigrate any other meditations. In In some ways you can say that each meditation is a tool. Right. If you're trying to take a bolt off of a board, you, you, you need a wrench, not a screwdriver. If you're trying to, <laughs> so you need particular tools. So again, I'm not an expert on other forms of meditation, but a ton of work has been done on transcendental meditation. I can speak with authority about the research on that, its impact on brain waves and mind function and uh, physiology. But other techniques of meditation are more and more doing similar research and we're learning about brainwave function and physiology and all those other sorts of things. So what we need to understand is that TM has a very specific set of correlates that go with it and a very specific function. Marishi often said that what it was like was it was like sharpening a knife. So if you want to sharpen a knife, you don't cut more vegetables. You get a stone and you sharpen the knife and that prepares you to go out and cut the vegetables. So TM right, right. is like sharpening the knife. Each time you meditate, the awareness of that inner infinite source becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And that allows you to use whatever tool you are more effectively. 
And that's the point of it all. Indeed. What now you speak of, uh, of initiation with that. And I've done lots of different types of just, you know, basic meditation and I've never heard of initiation um, in any of these techniques. Is it something like a Reiki attunement, the initiation? Uh, I, I actually thought the same exact thing. I have that written down about Reiki. Is it is it similar to doing that? I, I think if I stretched, I might be able to make some kind of parallel. I think I did, <laughs> I did level two Reiki. My wife trained me at one point, but there are some fundamental differences. For starters, uh, transcendental meditation isn't something that was invented by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. In fact, it was very clear when he brought it out that he is borrowing it. So he had a teacher whose name was, well, <laughs> are you sitting? Swami Brahmananda Saraswati Jagadguru Bhagwan Shankaracharya of Jyotirmath. I'm going to ah. clap. <laughs> it just we, rolls off the tongue. We, uh, yeah, we, we spent a week learning how to say that. But um, we, we referred to him for, as Guru Dev for obvious reasons. It's a whole lot simpler. But anyway, Swami Brahmananda was part of a tradition. And, and the story is told that uh, as a boy, he knew, he just knew that this life, he had to do something. So he pulled his parents into the kitchen one day. I think he was all of about 10 or 11 years old. And he said to him, uh, look, I have to leave home now and go find my guru. So little Swamiji wandered out the door and roamed all over India. There's a very famous story told about how at one point, he was interviewing a possible guru who was a Dandi Sanyasi. Now, that's a specific tradition in India uh, of yogis. And a Dandi Sanyasi has an orange robe. He has a staff called a Dandi, a little jug, a change of clothes, and some rice. And that's all he owns in the world. Wow. He, wow. Wanders, he wanders North India and uh, when people see them, they're called wandering saints, and they feed them, and it's considered a tremendous blessing. It would be like inviting the Pope to your kitchen for Thanksgiving. Wow. So uh, wow. these guys wander around. So he was talking with a Dandi Sanyasi about the possibility of becoming his guru. And uh, the Dandi Sanyasi said, well, we'll need to eat. And, and uh, uh, Swami Brahmananda said to him, Yes, yes, definitely. Can you make a fire and make something for us to eat? Well, in the Dandi Sanyasi tradition, of course, they don't carry any matches and they're not allowed to light fires. Oh. So oh. the guru got really upset and said, you young man, young lad, who do you think you're talking to? And Swamiji looked at him and said, oh, I think I'll be moving along. It seems you've already lit a fire. And with that, he packed up his kit bag and, and disappeared into the wilderness, ultimately finding his guru and then studying with him, living in a cave until at one point he had his awakening. Mm. And then he went off and became a wandering sadhu. So he lived in the Himalayas and stories would emerge periodically of this great saint who would meditate uh, sitting in full lotus up in the Himalayas surrounded by tigers and wild animals who were oh, wow. next to him while he meditated. And so he stayed up there in isolation for 40 years. But in India, unlike the Catholic faith, the Hindu faith says, we have four seats in India, south, east, west, and north, and they are called the Shankaracharya. They are the seats of the Hindu faith. And in India, 
they are filled only with people they believe are qualified. And if they do not believe anybody is qualified, then the seat remains vacant. Well, the seat of, uh, of the Northern, which is considered the most sacred seat of the Shankaracharyas, uh, Jyotir Math is the name of that area. That seat had been vacant for almost 80 years. Hmm. And stories of Swami Brahmananda emerged. And so people would go up into the Himalayas, hunt him down, find him and say, would you grace us by coming out and accepting uh, the Shankaracharya? And of course he said, no, I have no interest. I want to just stay up here and meditate. <laughs> but they prevailed upon him. And then finally at the ripe old age of 70, they convinced him to come down and take over the Shankaracharya seat. And so he did. And it was there that he met Maharishi. Maharishi was not a part of the Brahman tradition. So he was not considered one of the upper castes so he became his secretary. Oh. He basically kept his room clean, swept it out, took notes for him, set up his speaking engagements, and just followed him around. And Maharishi said after several years of doing this, he too had an awakening. And so he sat at the lotus feet of his guru for 14 years, at which point the Swami Brahmananda shuffled off this mortal coil, in the words of Hamlet, <laughs> and Maharishi went off and said, I don't know what to do. My guru is gone. And so he went into silence and spent three years in the north of India in a cave in silence. And then at one point, he just got this urge to go out and visit a certain Hindu shrine. When he got there, somebody said to him, are you speaking tonight? And he said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> said, you must come and speak. And so he came and spoke and soon there were thousands of people. And uh, the next thing you know, he was traveling the world. In 1957, he arrived in Hawaii and began teaching. And then uh, he arrived in California in 58. And then, of course, he ran into the Beatles in 1967. Right. And uh, the rest is history. When he taught, he was absolutely insistent that he never be given credit for transcendental meditation. In fact, he was so adamant about that that those of us who are trained as teachers, when we teach somebody in the actual initiation, we begin by doing a puja, a ceremony of thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And that ceremony is dedicated to the tradition of masters, beginning with Swami Brahmananda Saraswati and going back thousands of years to a lengthy lineage of great teachers. So when we begin to teach, the first thing we do is we attempt to align ourselves with that tradition. Oh. It's only when we have done that that we pass on the technique of TM. As a practical matter, what that means is when you learn transcendental meditation, you are in some sense aligning yourself with that ancient tradition, and that gives you a certain level of protection. Oh, so in the, uh, in the initial teaching, of course, what we do is a very simple process. Once we finish that ceremony, we teach you the actual technique. And then over the next three days, we walk you through it to make sure you understood it thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And typically 10 days after your initiation, we check in again. And then usually two months later, we check in. And then, of course, the organization is available to you, and there are centers located all over the planet Earth, and anytime you want to go in and check to be sure your meditation is working correctly, you're welcome to come to any of those. Mm -hmm. So there is an actual initiation. 
and it's a very specific process. So one of the things that we're very careful with when we teach TM is we want people to understand it is a simple, natural technique, it is not a belief, and further, that it is effortless. Mm. Oh, I and love great, that. That's one of my favorite words. Deal, a great deal of the effort that we teachers expend is ironically in trying to keep the effort out of your practice. So if oh, you wow. learn transcendental meditation and you say to us, well, I, I was trying, I was like, oh, no, 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 we don't try. <laughs> this is effortless. It sounds like a little effort is creeping in. Need to get rid of that. We need to go back to recognizing that the process is spontaneous, that once we begin it, that natural tendency to move in the direction of more and greater goes all by itself. Any attempt to push it, force it, is doomed to failure. So this then becomes one of the major differences between what we do in TM and what a number of other meditation techniques do. There mm -hmm. is absolutely no concentration in TM. So we don't force the mind to do anything. In fact, we do the absolute opposite. And that's we a let the mind thing. be free and let it go in its own natural direction. So it is an effortless or nearly effortless process. That's in addition, tremendous. We know that when we teach somebody transcendental meditation as a result of that, all that research that has been done over the last 50 years, we now know that when somebody learns transcendental meditation, they, they experience what we call a fourth state of consciousness. Mm. So any state of consciousness, waking, sleeping, dreaming, has both a, an internal mental uh, uh, correlate and an external physiological one. So mm -hmm. when you are awake, we expect certain characteristics of your function. So typically you're going to have sort of beta brain waves, you're going to have an elevated respiration and pulse and blood pressure. And there are a whole series of things that correlate with the waking state. So if somebody's in the other room and we just had printouts, somebody sitting there could read the printouts and say, this guy's awake. Okay. So just look and say, he's awake. Now, when somebody begins to dream, they then experience theta and delta, and they have very specific brain waves, and they have reduced oxygen consumption, reduced respiration rate, lowered, et cetera, et cetera. And a physiologist can go in and look at a bunch of printouts and say, this guy's in the REM dream state. Mm -hmm. When he goes into deep sleep, he likewise is going to have very specific brain waves and very specific physiological function. When you do transcendental meditation, you experience a very specific set of brain waves, eight to nine cycles per second, mm. are alpha brain waves, and they are pretty much nonstop from the moment you start until you stop. In addition, you have a whole bunch of physiological correlates, including drastically reduced oxygen consumption, alteration in galvanic skin response, reduced pulse, reduced blood pressure, uh, reduced lactic acid content, and a whole series of other things, again, a physiologist could look at the printout and say, I don't know what the hell this is. It's not waking, sleeping, or dreaming. It's something else. And so Maharishi said, this is a fourth state of consciousness. This is transcendental consciousness. Now, what's really interesting, one of the most interesting things to come out of the research that I've read over the years, is that 
when you come in to do that initiation ceremony, if you are sitting in that chair and I finish my little puja and then I teach you TM and I strap your head with a, um, a EEG cap mm -hmm. and we run EEG in the other room and somebody's watching the printout, within seconds of learning this simple, natural, effortless technique, your brain will start doing eight to nine cycles per second. Oh, That's wow. from Jump Street, the first time you do it. Now it gets even more interesting because you can then do a printout of the brain waves of somebody who has just learned transcendental meditation. Now, where it gets interesting is, so Michelle decides to learn TM, she goes on a Saturday, she learns the TM, and they do a print out of her brain waves five minutes after she starts. Tim Owens, who's been doing it for 50 years, goes in, same thing, puts his little cap on, they do a brainwave printout. Then they go into a room with 50 physiologists and put the two up there and they say, which one is brand new and which one has been doing it for 50 years and they can't tell. No way. Really? No different. Holy really. cow. So, so it just immediately starts things. to do its... Wow. You are Tim. immediately in transcendental consciousness and that will never change. Every time you do TM, if you do it correctly as it's taught, you will enter that state of consciousness. Now, where it does get different is if Michelle does it for six months and then we look at her brainwaves outside of meditation, we will see some changes in her brainwaves that reflect what's called brainwave coherence. Huh. Now, brainwave coherence, when you're practicing TM, as you're practicing it, the front right lobe the front left lobe, the lower left occipital, the lower right occipital, and various other areas of the brain, as we're speaking now, they're all bouncing all over the place. Mm -hmm. So there are different brain waves in all these different sections of the brain. If you learn transcendental meditation, once you begin to start the technique within seconds of beginning it, all of the different lobes begin to cohere. So the same pattern in the front left and the front right becomes the same in the back occipital and both sides, and you get what's called brainwave coherence. And that's associated with super intelligence, with mm -hmm. success in athletics, with success in business, with a lot of the, the really most successful people on the planet exhibit this phenomenon of brainwave coherence. Wow. So just to, Tim, I have a question. So to to sure. to kind of let our our listeners know that it's not so much about being able to get into the state. It's the willingness to get into the state and having faith that they can do it because there's so many people that are actually a little intimidated maybe by the name or what they actually think um, that this is any kind of meditation where I know Michelle probably is as well. But every time I'm doing readings, I'm saying to people, you hold your breath all the time. Oh God, yeah. You carry it. You carry anxiety. You should really be doing something that's deep breathing, relaxation, meditation. And I think the second that you put some sort of a, um, a stronger label to it, which is like transcendental. And I don't mean strong, like it's offensive, just that it gives it more of a sturdy title that people <laughs> get a little intimidated by it. So 
I want people that are listening tonight to understand that even though you have done this for 50 years, that what you're trying to tell us is if they have faith and that willingness to um, commit to this, and as you said, it's not a religion, it's a technique, it can help improve almost immediately. And they can- so I guess this will be the first time that uh, we're going to disagree, Katie. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Disagree on that. Uh, you use this word faith, you use mm-hmm. the word willingness. So if a person can sit in a chair and think they can do meditation, there is no requirement of faith. Other, oh, okay, than, cool. other than sit in the chair and close your eyes and think, mm-hmm. that's as much willingness as you have to have. So actually, <laughs> I've seen people who couldn't sit still. If you can get them to close their eyes and do the technique after a short period of time, they settle right down. But for the most part, there's no effort in this stuff. It, it's just, it's as easy it. as thinking a thought. Seen so, so there is every time you're going to disagree. I like that. <laughs> well, that's, so it's... um. You bring up a good point, and that is often people think, oh, no, I, I couldn't possibly do that. It's too mm-hmm. difficult. Um, my first reaction when I learned TM, this is 1971, and I'm, again, I was 19 years old. But my first reaction after I learned the technique and opened my eyes after my first meditation was, that's it? That's <laughs> all? And, and the guy who taught me, Fred Dexter, said to me, yeah, that's transcendental meditation. I said, you're kidding. And he said, no, no. I said, it's that? That's simple. Yeah. Right. And, and my thought was then how can I possibly do any good? Uh, yeah. but, um, stay, stay tuned. Boy, boy <laughs> did that change. Um, what, what Maharishi says about meditation is that essentially what you do is you get the ego out of the way and allow, mm-hmm. nature, allow nature to take over and let nature guide the process. If we get out of the way and do the specific technique, then nature takes over and takes charge of everything. And again, this is why this research is so intriguing. When somebody learns transcendental meditation, and I mean anybody, I've taught all kinds of people over the years. I've taught little kids. I've taught people who are borderline dementia. <laughs> you know, if they can think, if you, you know, I think. We, we have people who come in who are uh, closed head injuries. And so we will often have to keep reminding them of the simple technique because they forget it. Right. But if you put the little hat on them and do the chat, eight to nine cycles per second, depressed breathing, reduced oxygen, it's automatic. So the process of entering this state is absolutely effortless and automatic. And that's what's really astonishing about this stuff. If anything, my greater concern is that somebody can come in and learn transcendental meditation the way I did and say, you, you're kidding. That can't possibly be that simple. How can I do anything? <laughs> this is why in our local TM uh, group, uh, we talked for a while about investing in an EEG machine. Just so that when we talk people, we could just strap them right in and say, you see that printout right there? <laughs> did we lie to you? Look, there it is. And the other thing I wanted to say is the longer a person meditates, the more the state that they attain while they're meditating with the brainwave coherence, Mm -hmm. the more that becomes the waking reality. I was out in um, Fairfield, Iowa, which is one of the centers of TM on the planet Earth. And I was with one of the 
well, the researcher in EEG uh, research on transcendental meditation. And he wired me up and had me do a task, eyes open. And I was, you know, doing one of those little tasks on a computer screen where you're picking a thing and pressing a button and that sort of thing. And he showed me the printout of my EEG afterwards and then put that next to a printout of me while I was meditating. And there was almost no difference. Wow. That that's wow. what happens when somebody meditates for 40 years is gradually their brain just becomes increasingly coherent. Mm. So you, you can create that create coherent brainwave state the moment you learn to meditate. But it's through the repeated practice of meditating that over the years, that becomes your waking state. That becomes the way you live. So you can do it, but then you do become it. Ultimately. That's ultimately, it is, it is a technique that opens one up to the possibility of a permanent state of higher consciousness. I say again, I'm really excited about this, Tim. <laughs> Another thing too, Tim. Um, so do you make sure too that you are saying to your students as they're going through this or was said to you that it's not something that you're, you're giving them or doing for them. They are, you're just giving them those tools. They are responsible for it. Yeah, so remember I said in, I don't know, 1974, I had a break with the TM organization, and then I went out and did meditation for 40 years on my own. Mm-hmm. Got up in the morning, went in, meditated, came home at night, did it again, did it uh, literally probably 25,000 times without ever talking to anybody else that did TM. Wow. So a person can come in, learn TM, it takes four days, and then if you do the 10-day check, you know, that that gets tossed in. Mm -hmm. But at the end of that time, you can go out and meditate for the rest of your life and never talk to anybody involved with TM again. It's a self-contained teaching, and it's so simple and effortless, you don't need anybody else. Yeah, and there's so many people out there that talk to me, clients and friends, people I meet that want to meditate. And so very often it's like, I, what they say is I can't seem to do it. I'm always trying. I'm always thinking. And it's just the opposite of the experience that you're talking about with TM, which I think is going to be very attractive to a lot of people that have been well, trying to do hardest, this. The hardest part of TM is simply making it a habit. Mm. Mm. And that was something I learned early on. I learned that I, I didn't care what happened. I was going to do a, a meditation in the morning and one in the afternoon. But as far as the actual doing of it, once I sat in the chair and closed my eyes, the rest was effortless, absolutely simple. I think, Candy, I don't know about you, but doesn't it feel like often when we sit down with a reading, we kind of, that happens. I feel like I go to a mm-hmm. different place. And if my eyes are closed, if I'm quote unquote channeling someone, when I open my eyes, it's almost like a, a falling back into myself. It's a little stuck yes. sometimes. It's like, where was I? I'm not even sure where I was, but, you know, the coming back. Yes. Very profound. Mm-hmm. I agreed. I absolutely agreed, Michelle, with that. Because um, on, a, on a regular basis, and, and because we've been doing it for so long, you mm-hmm. and I, that we can come in and out quickly and then literally you go pick up Dee, Dee or yep. I've got to get Sarah or I've got to go do something else. But I've taken that time with the, either the client or in preparation 
to the client of getting my mind right and, and kind of, you know, doing my inner work. Yeah. Going someplace else. Tim, would it be gauche to ask you um, if you could um, do an example of it while we're on, or is that not permitted? Well, I'm not sure what I would do. I mean, when I meditate, I sit with my eyes closed and I'm quiet. Oh, I thought, okay. <laughs> so it's not as if it's a guided meditation, oh, no. correct? Nope. It, you're, you're the guide. Okay. Nature is the guide. So mm-hmm. once you close your eyes and start the technique, the rest is just happens by itself. Amazing. Okay. So if you if you watched me meditating, it would be singularly unimpressive. <laughs> what would be impressive is if you knew how to read an EEG machine and you did the readout and you said, "Holy cow, that yeah, that really does happen." Look at him go. Right. But if you if you wire somebody up every time they meditate, there's a whole series of very substantial changes that occur in their physiology that are reflective of a forced state of consciousness. I, I the science geek and Michelle and I love that stuff. Well, one of the things that that I like to say is that human beings are born hardwired for three states of consciousness: waking, sleeping, and dreaming. Marishi said, "Look, we also have a fourth, but it takes an act of volition. Mm. So it's not automatic. It requires something." But then he said but it absolutely has to be as effortless as we can possibly make it. The moment the tiniest little bit of effort creeps in, you will lose that state of consciousness. So again, that's what TM teachers do is run around and and tell people, no, 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 you don't work that hard. No, less. Mm -mm. (laughs) It's even easier than that. (laughs) Where else does that happen? (laughs) Absolutely love that. other questions yes do you teach with a group or do you teach well i i almost never teach anymore i i'm retired and i the the fellow that teaches locally is a guy named dr tom bajarski and he he teaches out of a a a room that he rents in a motel in colony and he's been teaching there for i don't know 10 years or more and he does the bulk of that stuff. Once in a while, I will go in and I'll teach a small group, maybe once every year or two. But otherwise, I, I don't have the, the drive for it anymore. I did that when I was a kid and I, I got recertified to do it back in 2010 or thereabouts. And I did a couple of years of it. And then I said, you know, I'm retired and I don't particularly want to do that anymore. I'll let Tom take care of it. No, you say it's four days in a row. Is it like a full, like eight hour day or? No, no, no. It's uh, typically an hour and a half to two hours. Oh. So on a Saturday, you would come in and you would be initiated. And then on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, in a typical course, you'd come in in the evening around seven o'clock. You'd be done by 830 and you'd go home and do two more meditations and come back and do another hour and a half check. And at the end of four days, you can meditate successfully for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and how do you check, how are students checked when you say they check? There's a, pr- a procedure that you learn that involves sitting and meditating right alongside somebody using a series of questions and mm-hmm. then meditating along with them and then okay. evaluating at the end together what happened. Oh, cool. It takes that about cool. 25 minutes and um, it's available to anybody who's a, a, a has learned transcendental meditation. So if you need to have a check, although most of us find after a while, it's it's so damn easy that 
really don't even need it. The one thing I do like is that we do have, uh, we try at least pre-COVID, once a month we would get together at that same uh, motel in that room and we would have group meditations. Mm -hmm. And those are a lot of fun. When you meditate with a dozen or more people, it amplifies the effect. That's gotta be just a trip. And in addition, when Maharishi developed this technique, he also developed a, an advan- a series of advanced techniques, uh, one of which is known colloquially as the flying technique. Right. And it's a little technique that you use that alters your state of consciousness and allows you s- to sustain samadhi while in activity. Mm-hmm. Hey. So when people do this technique, What he said was, if you have one person doing the technique, they create waves of coherence that go out into the environment and create peace. If you put two people together, you get what the physicist Maharishi referred to as the Bose effect. And that is, instead of having double the effect of those two people Mm -hmm. meditating, you get four times the amount, two squared. Three people is three cubed, four mm-hmm. is four to the fourth power, and okay. so on. So if you're following my mathematics, you realize that at a certain point, if you get a large group of people together doing this technique, they create tremendous waves of coherence. And so one of the things he said is if you could get groups of the square root of 1% of the population of any country, to do these things twice a day as a group in the United States, it would be around 25 or 2,600 people in one place, all doing it together. You would create an invincible nation. Oh my gosh. So that was one of his ambitions as he got older. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been, I participated in those groups and they're pretty amazing. It sounds amazing. I, I definitely am, am, really down Michelle um to try this let's do it yeah I think that it would be really good for you and I especially to reset our 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 inner balance well anybody that wants to learn this it's as simple as going on a computer googling tm transcendental meditation and you'll get to a site called tm.org Oh, okay. And most people are fully conversant with how websites work. Once you get to tm.org, you can learn anything you need. They'll tell you anything. And they have a, a, you can email them or you can phone call and they have a call center and they will connect you with your nearest teacher and he'll take it from there. Oh, I love it. That's great information, not only for Michelle and I, but for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Is it done in groups normally, Tim? Like a group? Uh, when when teaching people, we usually try to teach it with at least three or four people minimum, so that they can listen to each other's experiences. They learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But occasionally, it, just for a variety of reasons, you will teach one person, and the disadvantage to that is that you don't have people to bounce it off of. But obviously, there are situations like somebody's in the hospital or there's a situation where you need to do meditation on the spot and you just say, okay, let's do it. This sounds like the simplicity. It's so simple. Right. The journey we're going to take Katie. I definitely think so. So, um, anything else? I I don't have any more questions. Michelle, do you, I I went down my list. Shockingly, I got, 
<laughs> He's, you're always so thorough that like listening to you yeah, in yeah. itself is such a treat because you're, you, you really do um, have an excellent way of speaking. You should have your own podcast, Tim. I, I taught English for 29 years. To I know. You, <laughs> learn, you learn how to speak to survive. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, whenever there's oh. a question hanging out there, he seems to like intrinsically know what's out there and answer it for us. So it's, it's exactly. Well, Tim, again, thank you so much for sharing your talents and your time. Um, I know we'll have probably both you and Chick back on again. And uh, so appreciative. Tim, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they need to? Um, well, let's see. What Actually, I would suggest if your listeners have a, an interest in TM, that they just go right straight to TM.org. Okay. And if they learn, they'll see me at a group meditation one day. Okay. <laughs> I lead Wonderful. Them. Oh, you do? Yeah. Tom and I lead those things. Oh, well, They're one of my favorite things. Uh, the, the, the teaching takes so much time that I sort of stopped doing that. But the advanced lectures and the group meditations, I just love those. The bee's knees. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again. So blessed to have you as part of our crew and come in and educate us on this. And I'm excited to try it myself. So we'll mm -hmm. give our listeners an update and uh, let them know how we're doing on our journey. Mm -hmm. Right, Michelle? We absolutely will. This Along is with it. And anybody else out there that wants to let us know if they're, they're interested in this or they start to do it and, um, and let us know um, through our, our uh, messaging how they're doing with it. So mm -hmm. thank you. As always, Michelle Lyon Polito, thank you so much for being my co-pilot. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> and uh, thank you, D. Scott. You're welcome. Thank you. Behind, behind thank the scenes. He's the, the Wizard of Oz. Um, and thank you to all our listeners, as always, for contacting us and contributing um, show content as well as sharing us and liking us. Uh, we really, truly appreciate it. So keep that yeah. up. And we've got some other exciting shows as well as tonight's um, that are coming up for the summer. So uh, just keep letting us know what you want to know more about. So yeah. again, thank you all so much. Thank, thank you. you. All the leaves are brown the leaves are And the sky is gray Passed along.